Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right, Hosea chapter 7. Started the week off thinking... Boy, I'm going to need to do Hosea chapter 7 all the way through chapter 11. (laughs) I thought, man, that's going to be a task. But what we see in 7, 8, 9, and 10 is a continual stream of thought, and then that leads into chapter 11. But as I started studying this and getting into it, I thought, I can't do more than one chapter, so we're going to be in chapter 7, and we're going to see that God does, in fact, repeat Himself, and we're going to see some things and themes that we've already seen in the book of Hosea, and we're going to pick them back up again today. The sermon title this morning is Sins Revisited. Sins Revisited. God repeats Himself. Now, prophets often do this to the people of God. Last week I mentioned parents often have to repeat themselves to children. And the key to good parenting isn't finding the magic words, isn't finding the magic discipline, the one-time thing that's going to make your kids get in line, snap their fingers, and finally you know, be the kind of child that asks when you ask them to jump, they respond saying how high, okay? There's not a a secret code to making that happen right now, but the key is discipline, spanking. If you don't don't spank, your kids are going to be jerks, by the way. And the key to parenting is just consistency. Be consistent. Be faithful. Don't let things go. Just continue to be consistent. And it feels like in the midst of consistency sometimes that we're losing the battle, It feels like, my goodness, I just want you to pick up the Legos, or I just want you to do this or do that. And then you continually have to repeat yourself. And you continually have to be consistent. That's just the way parenting goes. And as your kids get older, things start to click. Things start to just happen. They just fall in line like, okay, that's great. They're now picking up the Legos by themselves. Or if your prayers are answered, they've just thrown all the Legos away. Like, they're so expensive, and they're absolutely awful. Amen, anybody. And you lose the set as soon as it gets fixed, it gets fixed, and you just lose it. I almost want to just, after the set's built, glue every single piece in place, set it on the shelf, and never take it off the shelf again. But kids love them, so I'm praying that God would help me and change my heart on that. Um, but prophets do this. They, they repeat themselves. So some of the stuff we're going to hear today, it's a repeat, and that's intentional. Because God's people are often hard-headed, and it's the same today. We are often hard-headed, so God regularly brings the sins of His people back in front of them for their attention. Look at this again, repent and change, and then God does come through with His discipline. He doesn't just talk, God acts. God is not somebody who simply talks, God is a God of action, and He still does this for His people today. Now, God brings judgment But first, before judgment, God brings clear and direct and repeated warnings. Warnings and actions, they go together. And we're going to see that yet again as we revisit some of the sins of Israel and as we consider how these really help us see what's going on in our world today. Starting in verse 1, chapter 7. Starting in actually the last verse of chapter 6. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal their land, heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim... Is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. 
In verse 2, we find out, even though there's promises from God to Israel, that restoration is going to come. In verse 2, we find out that God's people were living as if God did not see the way they were living. God's people were living as if they, God did not see the way they were living. They were doing their thing and acting as if God did not remember their evil. And their evil deeds surrounded them, and they were thinking God is just overlooking them. God is not seeing them. God is distant and not recognizing how we are living in this moment. And Israel had got to this point where they thought that God had simply forgot, that God had done what the deists say, that he had kind of made the clock, wound the clock, and set the clock in motion, and then stepped away as if he was not present and near to them in the midst of their sin. To Israel, God had become some distant God like the other gods were. Canaanites had their gods, and then Israel had their God, and he was very much in their mind in this moment of their history like these other gods, these false gods. They didn't think that God really cares what they did, and so they were living to make themselves happy. Whatever they wanted to do, that's what they did. In a lot of ways, they were living even like they lived before the kings. They were living in whatever way would make them happy. But the deeds of Israel were all around them, and they certainly were before God. This is what they had forgotten. Israel was responsible for their actions and their sins. There's always a tendency to think that our actions are just overlooked, and God is a God of love, and so our deeds and actions don't really matter. And we're good Protestants, so we know we are not saved by works of the law, and we will never be saved by works of the law. And so there can be a tendency to think that works of the law, therefore, don't matter at all. Deeds don't matter, actions don't matter, they don't have consequences or carry eternal weight with them. And Israel had fallen into this rut. They thought that God didn't see. They lived as if, verse 2, that God did not remember their evil. And it's a principle that we need to be reminded of that applies not only to ancient Israel but us today, is that God will hold people accountable for their actions. God sees every single thing we do and every single thought that we think. Now, for the non-believer, that should bring absolute terror to you if you're in here today. That God does not just observe your actions, but he observes why you do what you do. The motive that's underneath what comes out. And the Bible tells us that the human heart is deceitful above all things. And whether you realize it or not, you are a sinner against a holy God. And it should terrify you that your deeds are before the Lord. And not only your deeds, we know from the rest of the Bible that even your thoughts are motives down deep into the heart. But for the Christian, we know that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The thoughts of God knowing everything and every deed should bring great comfort to us. That God does not just wash his hands with humanity, didn't wash his hands with Israel and just say, go for it, do your thing, do whatever you want to do. And he doesn't wash his hands with the wicked nations of the world today, even our own nation in our time right now. It's a principle that applies everywhere. God will hold people accountable for their actions. Israel was not allowed to blame society. They were not allowed to, br to blame their culture. They were not allowed to bl blame the loudest voices or even their internal broken self. They weren't allowed to play the blame game or the victim. They were, in fact, responsible for their deeds, and they were living as if God did not see or remember all that they were doing. God knows the sins of his people and he knows the sins of the nations, national sins. And sin propensities are before, their God, before God and they do not escape him. And those who presume that God does not judge the nations are like those living in Israel who did not know that God remembers what they do. 
And we may think delayed judgment is no judgment at all, but God does judge nations, and nations rise and fall at the bidding of the Lord and at the timing of the Lord. And we best remember that. The people were living in a way that actually made the kings of Israel happy. We're going to see the last 30 years, and right now in in this time period of Hosea, we're living in the last 30 years of the northern kingdom Israel before they were exiled into Babylon. And we see that the kings were so wicked that they actually enjoyed the fact that the people that they were ruling over were living as if God didn't see and as if God didn't care. We see that in verse 3. By their evil, they make the king glad. And the princes, by their treachery, the kings and the princes of Israel were happy by the wickedness and the treachery that were amongst the people. The culture of the land made the kings and the princes happy. We find that corrupt politicians and leaders have been around for a very long time. The kings and the princes of Israel were happy about rebellion. Bad politicians have been around for a long time and still exist and they are everywhere. And it's a point that's revisited by God because we see this in chapter 4. It's revisited again. It's like God really wants them to understand the wickedness of their leaders. He wanted them to know the depth of their sin. And why is it that politicians still to this day have such bad reputations? They're so few and far between, aren't they? And if you hold a political office, or if you one day hold a political office, and we need, by the way, people that believe in the authority of God's word to be in political office, it's better for a city, it's better for a county if Christians who submit to the authority of God's word are sitting in those elected and appointed seats than if pagans are. Newsflash, it's good when leaders elected and appointed are asking, what does God say about this? That's a good thing. But they're few and far between. And even people, I I mean, I am sick and tired of people claiming, especially in conservative circles, yeah, we believe in God and we love God, and it's a complete joke. They do not. They're literally just like 10 years behind the most evil and, and vile politicians that are out there. And the Bible, it doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't walk on eggshells. God says the kings and the princes of Israel were wicked. They loved the evil culture of the day. And I think being a godly politician is so difficult because few men can handle power and use it for the good of others. You see this all around. Men are delegated power and authority. And when they're delegated power and authority, instead of using it for the good of others, it goes to their head and they use it for themselves. I was actually, uh, Dennis reminded me of this. It's something my father-in-law reminded me of something recently that politicians in our country get insider, inside, insider trading um, perks that nobody else in the world gets, nobody else in our country gets, and they get richer and richer and richer as they get these salaries that should be, you know, that, that to the normal common man are, are really inflated and really big salaries, but not to the point that they should be coming out of office multi-millionaires and some even billionaires. And you see the corrupt nature in which those who are living and serving as politicians are, are existing, and it, it's frustrating, it's angering. And it's been around a long time. So few people can handle power and use it for the good of others. And when men won't submit to God, they will make other people submit to them. 
When leaders will not submit to God, they will demand everybody submit to them. In Israel, the kings were corrupt. The politicians were corrupt. And then the people were corrupt. Again, we get these sins revisited. You should be thinking, like, this is repeat material. It's like, yeah, it is repeat material. These are things that they needed to hear over and over again. And it's things we need to be reminded of over and over again. Look at verse 4. They are all, now speaking of God's people, they are all adulterers. They are all like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. We get this picture of an oven, a heated oven. We get this oven imagery three or four times as we work through this passage over the next several verses. But we find that God's people are all adulterers. They're all adulterers. They're covenant breakers, every one of them. And this is about God's covenant with Israel. In in a covenant, it's interesting, in a covenant, the way covenants work is there's two parties that come together and they agree on something. And both sides of the covenant, they say, I'm going to do my side of the covenant, I'm going to do my side of the covenant. And in Israel, what we see over and over again is God is faithful to his terms of the covenant. God is faithful. But what we see with Israel from the earliest moment on is that, I mean, even if you go back to Abraham, from the beginning with Abraham, Abraham is this man who God uses in mighty ways, and yet we have these huge blunders. And as you're starting to read through your Bible again this year, just look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just ask, is, this, is God's faithfulness to them about them or because of them? And if you look at Abraham thinking, you know, Sarai, honey, baby, they're going to think you're really, you're, you're drop-dead gorgeous, even though you're a 75-year-old woman, beautiful. I mean, honey, they're going to want you to be their wife, so we're going to say that you're my sister, and it's a half-truth. And it's this weird thing that happens, and it happens twice. You're like, Abraham, come on, man. Like, what's going on? And we have these stories that are amazing where God comes through and he uses broken people. But we see in the patriarchs and then down through the history of the Old Testament stories, we see Israel's unfaithfulness, Judah's unfaithfulness. We see covenants being, or the covenant side that the people of God should have upheld being broken and falling short over and over and over again. It's almost as if they needed a covenant keeper. It's almost as if they needed somebody to come and do what they were supposed to do but couldn't do. It's almost as if they needed somebody to come and do what they refused to do. And this is the perpetual problem in the Old Testament, is the constant violation of God's covenant with them over and over and over. God was faithful. Israel was unfaithful. Thankfully, we have a covenant keeper, capital C, capital K. A covenant keeper, Jesus, that came to keep their side of the covenant, the covenant that we should have kept. Jesus came and kept it for us. For them, it's good news. Thank you, Jesus. He didn't just do it for the Israelites. He didn't just do it for the Jews. The Gentiles are included. Gentiles, baby, we're in. He did it for the world. But Israel was like this baker. Israel was like a baker that did not know how to bake. That's a bad baker, right? A baker who doesn't know how to bake, who doesn't know the baking order and the baking process. That's not a very good baker. That's not somebody who's going to be selling a lot of cakes. That's not going to be somebody that's selling a lot of bread. The sourdough comes out, and it's awful. I mean, there's a lot of ladies in here that are bakers, and Jordan bakes, and the sourdough, we love sourdough bread. My dad prefers bunny bread. Jordan will make some really great sourdough bread, and dad walks in. It's like hot and steamy, and he's like, where's the bunny bread? 
this incredible sourdough bread. The boys love it. And uh, if, uh, if she didn't actually know how to make the sourdough bread and forgot actually how to do it and didn't do the right process, well, that bread is going to be really terrible bread. And what God is telling us is God's people are really bad at being God's people. <laughs> like, they don't even know how to do it. Like, they're, they're living like the world. They don't know how to be God's people. It's like they're refusing to look like God's people. It's like they're, they're God's people in name only, but their actions and their lives from the inside out are completely uncontrolled. They have uncontrolled passions. Their passions from the inside out are like an oven. And we get this in verses 5 through 7. We see that God's people have these uncontrolled, unbridled passions. And we see one of the fundamental problems, I actually was hitting on this in a small conversation here before church started, one of the fundamental problems with God's people in the Old Testament that they desperately needed was the Spirit of God inside of them. Because we see inside the people of God in the Old Testament these uncontrolled, unbridled passions that just kept coming out and coming out over and over again. In verse 5 we see that God's people could not control their alcohol intake. Look at verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with mockers, verse 6, for with our hearts are like, uh, like an oven, and they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. They have these uncontrolled, unbridled passions. Verse 5, they could not control their alcohol intake. Verse 6, it says that they went in these, when, when they would be intoxicated, they would go and pursue whatever intrigued them. Look at verse 6. For their hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. Think the book of Ecclesiastes. Whatever our eyes desire, that's what we're going for. Whatever intrigues me in this moment, Forget that delayed gratification. Forget living for something bigger than this moment. Whatever's right now, right in front of me, whatever intrigues me, that's what I'm going to pursue. And this was God's people. As, as we see in verse 7, they were hot as an oven. They could not control their passions. They did not have self-control. And we've talked about this many times, but a society without self-control is a society on fire. 2020, summer, 2020, 2021, turn on the news at any time, by the way, uh, the only time I'll ever mention Joe Rogan um, in a sermon, but uh, Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA technology, was on this uh, episode. He talks about this mass hysteria, mass hypnosis that we're under as a whole. And we see that there is, a, as a society, we see that as a society in general, it is like this, this burning is everywhere where you see nonsense everywhere portrayed as sense nonsense portrayed as expertise and it's presented everywhere it's like we're going to see in a little bit it's like silliness and it's presented as wisdom the wisdom of god and the wisdom of this world are so at odds with each other just so at odds with each, other, with each other. And we see this with God's people. They weren't walking with the wisdom above. They lacked self-control. They were living out their passions and pursuing whatever intrigued them. And they couldn't even control their alcohol intake. Again, this is why non-Christian constitutional republic can't work. If you don't have a self-controlled people, you cannot have or you will have a controlled people. If you don't have a self-controlled people, you will end up having a controlled people. 
Control and chaos will be everywhere. And we see that the same problem that existed in chapter 4 when the people were not listening to the priests, but even if they did listen to the priests, the priests were offering up a whole bunch of nonsense and garbage. The same thing is happening with the rulers in Israel in chapter 7. With Hosea, he tells them in verse 7 that they, the people, devour their rulers, but then listen to their rulers. So they're not listening. They're eating them. They're devouring their rulers. They don't care what the rulers have to say, but then look what the rulers are doing. All the kings have fallen, and none of them call upon me. The people devour the rulers. The rulers do not call upon God. It is a mess in, in Israel. Chaos everywhere. And the rulers, sadly, do not call upon God at all. Fallen kings, J.A. Moyder, a commentator that I've been reading a lot for this book, the book of Hosea, he says this, over the last three decades before their exile, there were six kings. So six kings last three decades, over 30 years. Four of them were assassins that went to the throne through assassination. And only one died in his own bed. Dying in your old bed as an old man would be a sign of at least dying in a better way than being shot or not shot, maybe arrowed, by an assassin. But what we find is that the rulers were evil and the people would devour them and the rulers would not lead well. And there's a fundamental problem that we see that just is so pervasive in Israel. It's pervasive. It's the culture, it's the air that they breathe that the kings love. It's a, it's a way of existing that's evil. And it's everywhere. It's normal. It feels right. It's the way things are. This is how things are. When it turned into the 1990s, I'm barely old enough to remember this, but I remember this when people say, it's the 90s now. Remember that? For some reason, it's like the only decade that I can remember. There was a big phrase. I remember Mike Seaver even said that on Growing Pains. It's the 90s now. It's the, it, this is how things are. And there was a way things were in Israel. And we find it was so sickening and everybody was in on it. And it was so pervasive that they were a bunch of clowns walking around. It says here in a minute that they were just silly and they were fools. And this is just the air that they breathe. Ephraim wanted to be at the cool table. They wanted to be cool. This isn't just for junior hires and high schoolers. The desire to be in the in crowd in the world has been there since the garden forward. Wanting to be on the in crowd, wanting to be on the right side, wanting to do things our way, and then get with a group of people who, who actually will praise us for doing things our way. Verse 8, look at this. Ephraim mixes himself, himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. This is the problem from the time that Israel went in in the Canaanite conquest. Don't serve the other gods. Don't get into syncretism. Don't get into pluralism. Pluralism and syncretism and secularism are not God's idea, and it wasn't, it shouldn't be any nation's idea. As we talked about last week, secularism is a religion, and it demands everyone bow down to it, even Christianity. There's no such thing as an irreligious people. And there's always been this desire to be in the in crowd. The way the world works is that it's got a way and it's following the prince of the power of the air and there's a draw to it. It's Instagrammable. It looks good. It can get you in with what's normal. 
It can get you in with society. It can help you get and advance financially. Ephraim wants to mix with the people. We see this is a pervasive problem also over and over again with Israel. And they're a cake that's not turned. Now, when God's people try to look like the people, mixes himself with the people. When God's people tried to look like the peoples, when they tried to fit in, they didn't actually do it. It was a weird knockoff. It was a cake not turned. It's like, that's a cake, but not really. This is a represent, I mean, why is so much of Christian music and Christian movies, movies bad? Fortunately, some of them it's gotten better. You know, there's been some, there's been some advances. Apparently, it's a new Kurt Warner movie. Want to see that? Christian movie. There's some that are getting better. But why is it that Christian music and Christian mu- movies have this caricature about them that they're awful? And like, Sometimes we lie to ourselves and think, oh, that was a really good one, though. But like, if you step back, you're like, the acting was just so bad, you know? It's like Hallmark movies are like Oscar winners compared to like much of what Christian music is and Christian movies are. Not all of it. And like I said, there's been a lot that's, that's been making some progress and some good things that have come from that kind of work and hopefully more good things that come from that kind of work. But when God's people try to look like the people's, they look like a cake not turned. It's trying to be a cake, but it looks really silly. It's a cake, but it's a really bad one. And this is the temptation of every generation of God's people, and it remains a temptation today. When God's people cannot tolerate the thought of looking weird to the masses, we're looking different. We end up blending in with the culture and calling ourselves different. And instead of building a culture, instead of watching God build his kingdom and offering up a better culture to the world, Israel just stepped right in line with the peoples. What they should have realized is that God's people have a superior culture to build. Oh, this is offensive to the world today. There are some cultures that are superior to other cultures. And the Christian culture is the most superior culture. And it's open to every tribe and tongue. It's not got a color to it. It's not got a nation to it. It's this global thing. But when we try to look like the ways of the world, when we, when we try to syncretize with the peoples, things go bad, things go south real quickly. Friends, we have a culture that's different than any other culture of the world. It's a Christian culture. God's kingdom is literally being built in our midst. We take care of one another. We build families. We take care of each other. We don't murder babies. We don't outsource the care of the elderly. We invite people out of cultures of death into culture of life. We build physical and spiritual communities. We live as men and we live as women. We live as boys and we live as girls. We declare that Christ is king and we have no other. And we invite people in. How foolish it is when we try to look as much as possible like a culture of death. 
How silly it was for Israel, instead of embracing their identity as God's people and living out God's ways, they instead looked at, huh, those Moabites got it going on. Boy, Egypt and Assyria, have you seen their latest trends, their latest fashions, their latest movies, their latest music? I like that. And instead of building their own, instead of doing and living out what God had given them and entrusted to them, Assyria and Egypt, man, they are really cool. I want to fit in with them. I want to dwell with them. I want to look like them. And we see the problem here in a minute with this whole Assyria and Egypt thing. When we do what Ephraim did, which was a tribe within the northern kingdom of Israel, we end up being, they ended up being a cake not turned. It's a cake, but it's not a good cake. It's like, what is this knockoff cake? It's like Samson, verse 9. Now, Samson's not mentioned here, but it's a good parallel thought, I think, anyways. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Samson was seduced by a woman who was a liar and a cheat. Have you ever wondered why? Samson didn't just turn to Delilah, Delilah and say, uh, babe, can we just stop talking about this? Like, I love you, girl. Let's, let's, let's move on. Why do you keep asking this? And then time after time, when she deceives him and lies to him, he just, keep come, he just keeps coming back to her. And he ended up telling her the secret of his strength, and his strength was taken away. When Ephraim mixed with the peoples, they gave their strength away. That's what it says in verse 8. Israel, Ephraim mixes, with, mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Strangers devour their strength when they try to mix with the peoples or when they do mix with the peoples. They're giving their strength away, and they didn't even know it. And this principle still applies today. When we think about God's people, when God's people try to fit in, we get devoured and we don't even know it. We're offering our strength. We're not offering our strength to the world. We're giving our strength and they're sapping the life out of us, sucking the life out of us. And gray hairs come. And normally in the Bible, especially in the Proverbs, gray hairs are a sign of wisdom. Here it's a sign of weakness. Gray hairs come. It says gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. Now some of us go gray younger than others. Some never go gray. It's delayed. But gray hair, even though at times it's a sign of wisdom, most times, more times than not, here it's a sign of weakness. When a man grows gray hair, it's a symbol of lost power. Now the older you get, you can, get, you can maintain strength for a very long time. And do a lot of hard work and accomplish a lot of great things with your physical body. That's one of the things we encourage men with is, is, is stay strong. And stay strong for as long as you possibly can. There was a meme going around. My buddy Eric posted about a week ago. And it was a man carrying his little daughter's shoes like this in the front. And behind him was this like, you know, like National Guard guy or something or, or somebody. And he was carrying his wife who was carrying their daughter. And the meme said, don't be this guy. Like some other man carrying your wife out while you're carrying your daughter's shoes. 
you know. Don't be like that. We want to be as strong for as long as possible. But every man will tell you, strength is harder to maintain the older you get. There's a saying, if you don't lose, use it, you will lose it. And as the gray hair comes, muscle mass begins to go, your body changes, your strength begins to go. And what God is saying about Israel here is that their strength, these gray hairs are coming, and they're just giving it away willingly. And when God's people obey false gods, they're being devoured and giving their strength away. They're giving away what's distinct about them, what's amazing about what God is doing in them and for them. And it's no surprise, after decades and decades of the church trying to entertain the world by cheek, knock-off trinkets of entertainment, it's no surprise that we've lost our power. It's no surprise at all. Somehow or another, over the last 50 years, even longer than that, you can go back over really the last 100 years, back into like the late 1800s even, and probably back to the Second Great Awakening, where the idea was you've got to win them with entertainment. You'll read guys like Tozier or, uh, or uh, even one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and they rail against choirs because choirs were introduced to be entertainment to draw people in. And if you're entertaining people with the ways of the world, with things that's like your idea is like, we want to do something cool to make non-believers get our attention here, that's not what the church is about. It's mixing with the peoples. We call people out of that stuff into a different way of existing. And that means we have to live in a different way. And we're building a culture here. God's been doing something here, and God's people do live that way. We take care of one another. One of the things we're talking about is how we can build an in-church economy. How can we take care of one another in a way that the world's not taking care of one another? Everybody else has to go to these uh, big box stores that hate Christians and hate us and give to things that are evil and vile. Well, what about us starting to take care of one another? What about us providing our gifts and resources to one another and then buying things and products from each other and keeping God's money, our money, in-house, taking care of one another? Somebody needs to build a, uh, like a, uh, a meat house and uh, somebody needs to build like a little general store and then run that general store. And then we provide all our services. We take care of one another. And other people get to come and see how well God's people is taking care of each other. But when we refuse to build that distinct Christian culture, we hand, it's like we're handing scissors to Delilah and saying, hey, baby, cut that hair. Take my strength. And we're a cake not turned. You see, when we look at the book of Hosea, if we only stay there and don't connect the dots to see how this applies today, we miss so much. But the, the problem with Israel is that they were so proud. They were proud in their rebellion. They were proud as they looked to Egypt and as they looked to Assyria. Look at verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor do they seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. Israel was proud. Ephraim was arrogant. Pride is almost always and almost always defended by proud people. Prideful people are really good at making holy justifications for their pride. No, I'm not proud. I just care about God's kingdom. I'm not proud. I'm just right. And God cares about right and wrong. 
Proud people rarely recognize their pride. Prideful people are really good at defending their actions. You can almost hear Israel say, but aren't we not to love them, God? Aren't we to take care of them? Don't we want to win them, God? We've got to build relationships. There's kernels of truth in this stuff. We want to do whatever we can to get them to look at Jesus, don't we? We want them to look at God, the covenant keeper, don't we? We want the Moabite to come in, the Assyrian to come in, and the Egyptian to come in. Don't we need to adopt some of their ways to get them to come in? Pride. Pride. It's silly pride. Verse 11 says that it was silly without sense. Ephraim is like a dove, silly without sense. Calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. Again, the connection is, God, what, what are God's people in the Old Testament doing? Now, we're going to look in a minute just at a remnant, and we're going to look here at these last verses, and we're going to clarify a few things. When we think about God's people as a whole today, silly and without sense, the prophets punch. The Holy Spirit of God speaks to prophets, and it is, as Doug Wilson says, it comes with a serrated edge. Pride. Silly without sense. If we have a killer rock band and entertaining sermons, non-Christians are going to love to come. Silly and without sense. Pride. They called to Egypt. They went to the Assyrians. And yet, they had the God of the universe who, who is sovereign over the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Who in a moment could pull them down from power. He was their God. They were His people. And they were to turn their attention to them and their false gods. Instead of looking to God, they looked to earthly kings and kingdoms. Instead of going to the word and listening to the prophet. Instead of understanding proper worship and living. They went to the equivalent old school MTV or whatever else is popular. Whatever else is cool that the Assyrians and the Egyptians had. We just want to look like them. Silly and without sense. God's people didn't take their cues shouldn't have taken their cues from Egypt and Assyria. And God's people today should never take their cues from Egypt or Assyria. Slavery lands there. Slavery lives there. We don't go there. We go to the Word through the Spirit. We go to the Word through the Spirit. And here's the, I think, fascinating tale as it unfolds. God didn't allow their silly efforts to succeed. It's interesting. God wouldn't let it work. God's people would rebel and things would work for a minute and things would just crumble. And things would crumble because God wouldn't let it work. Look at verse 12. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. 
destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. God would not let their rebellion work. It's just a matter of time. God would not let Ephraim succeed in their rebellion and their pursuit of Egypt and Assyria. There was a limit. And God would discipline them. He was going to spread over his net, spread his net over them, rather. And destruction was coming. And we're told it's, it's interesting that redemption is not coming. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And how is it that redemption is not coming to Israel as a whole? And this is something we need to understand about the Old Testament and the New. Sermon 1 in Hosea, or 2, we talked a little bit about this. In the Old Testament, you had an elect Israel, where God chose a nation, the nation Israel. That's national election. The book of Romans, chapter 9, we find out, though, that not all Israel is real Israel. They're not the true Israel. They're not the elect within the elect. They're not the chosen within the chosen people. There's individual election as well, and that comes supernaturally. That comes by God choosing to save Jacob and not Esau. And that is represented in faith. Those of faith. Who has faith? And what we find is there was an Israel within Israel. And to the nation of Israel, redemption was not coming. It doesn't mean that there were some that were not of faith within that Israel. It doesn't mean that there were some that didn't look ahead into the promises and believe in them. It, wasn't, it doesn't mean that there were zero people in all of Israel and all of Ephraim that weren't saved or elected by God by grace. But it did mean that redemption for Israel was not coming. God was going to judge Israel, and God has judged Israel. And they do not have the title chosen people of God above them. That lampstand has been removed. And unless they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that temple's been torn down. AD 70 really happened. That city was destroyed. Judgment came. And there is only hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God is telling them that I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They continued to walk in rebellion. They continued, verse 13, to rebel against God. They continued to be astrayed from him. And God wouldn't let it work. It doesn't mean, like I said, that there was not a remnant. It doesn't mean that there were, there were not people of faith within the nation. But God's people, God's people as a whole, they were marching toward judgment. Uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation. There's warnings that come to these churches and God tells them that your lampstand will be removed. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't any Christians in the church of Sardis. It doesn't mean there wasn't any Christians in the church at Ephesus. But it does mean if they, if Ephesus, for instance, did not return to their first love, that the lampstand would be removed. And today, if we try to get a comparison today, we would say that there are some churches, and it doesn't mean that there's no Christians in those churches, but silliness and running to Assyria and running to Egypt, running to the ways of this world and looking like the world, in time, lampstands will be removed. And that's why you can name churches in your mind and your heart. It's like, what happened? You know, God did some amazing things there and then there's like a big old building with hardly nobody in it. We have these all throughout Carbondale right now. University Baptist Church, 
is a church that's completely walked away from the Lord. This is where, remember Leah Benning? Leah Benning left there, and she came to be a part of our church. It's a church that has long abandoned the gospel. It's a church that's long abandoned biblical ethics in pretty much every way. And it's a ginormous building with hardly nobody in it. What is that? That is a net covering them. What is that? That is a lampstand being removed, influence gone. And they will not be redeemed. And there's churches all across this land that are closing their doors. Churches that have been walking in rebellion to God and believe it, God will shut the doors of some churches. And he still removes lampstands. And I think this is a warning to us. In fact, I know it's a warning to all of us. Don't let the fire of your first loves go out. Don't turn to Assyria and Egypt or the way of America or the way of anything in this world that's popular and that's cool, that's in. Don't let them get your heart. Last week I asked you, who are you? Child of the Most High God. Let's practice. Who are you? And ask it again. Who are you? What was the second part? You're a slave of the king. That's who you are. We don't have to go to Egypt. We don't have to go to Assyria. God's given us his word. We don't have to figure out how to build a culture or get in line with the way of the world. Who cares what they think? We're inviting them into something way better. The way of the Lord is so much better. God would redeem those only in the line of Jacob, those who are truly born again, born again, but he would not redeem those who are in the line of Esau, even though Jacob and Esau were both born in the line of Abraham, born of the chosen people of God. And today, churches that work like the world, look like the world, they will not last. Verse 13, I think is a challenge. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is to them, for they have rebelled against me. Woe to those who claim the name of Christ, but speak lies against him. Judgment's coming. We also have to, and this is pervasive in our society today, paying lip service to God, but not actually knowing him. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gnash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained them and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall, by their derision, this shall, by their derision, in the land of Egypt. Verse 14, Hosea, God through Hosea is telling us that they are crying out to God, but not from the heart. Their hearts are not the Lord's. They're paying lip service to God, but they do not worship God and they're not trusting in God. And how do we know? It's because they wail on their beds and they're gnashing themselves for grain and wine. They're gashing themselves for grain and wine. Gashing themselves, letting themselves bleed for blessing is a pagan form of worship. It's not the worship of the Most High God. Paying lip service to God, but then worshiping like the pagans around them. 
They spilled blood to their false gods. And even when they prayed to God, even when they're praying and wailing out, they're doing so as if he was a pagan god and not the God of the universe, not Yahweh. You cannot properly worship God with pagan practices. God regulates our worship. And God will not accept that worship even if it's genuine. There's a popular thing that, that goes around, and I've heard this for years, that God doesn't really tell us all that much to do when we come together as his people. We're really just free to do a lot of things, and we're free to do whatever God doesn't prohibit. So just whatever he doesn't prohibit, we're free to do. And so what people have done in their ministry models and practices is they've used this idea, well, we're going to go plunder the Egyptians. And we're going to go plunder them, and, and they twist that kind of idea, and they plunder the Egyptians for, for things like entertainment and for what's cool. And it a couple years ago, there's something that kind of dawned on me, and I looked at this, uh, I was looking at this new guy on Instagram or Facebook or something, I don't know. And it was a church ad, and it said, we're not nearly as cool as we look. And it was an invitation to come. And it was so clear what they thought about themselves. They thought that they looked really cool. Like, that was their, that was their disposition, as they thought that they looked cool. They, they were anticipating people were going to think we're cool, and they're going to be intimidated by how cool we look. And they're not going to come because we're so cool. So we got to let them know, even though we look really, really cool, that we're not as cool as we look, so they won't be intimidated and they'll, and they'll come. Like silly without sense, pride. Pride. The truth is that God has told us a lot about proper worship and how we're to come and what we're to think about and how we are to do this thing here. Like, what, what are we doing when we come together? In fact, John records this in John chapter 4 as he's talking to a woman at the well. And this woman came to the well, and there's a conversation that happens. And in John 4, verse 23 and 24, we hear this. But we know, we, but, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So time is coming, apparently that was not there yet, where true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God has sought us out. And if we're going to worship properly, God's people, if we're going to worship in a way that Israel was not worshiping, if we're going to do what God would have us do, we as an individual and as a corporate body, must worship in spirit and in truth. We respond to God by the Spirit and in accordance with the truth of His Word. And as a church and as individual members of it, we've got to, again, going into the new year, just draw the line in the sand to say, I'm, I'm going to worship the Most High God. By the Holy Spirit, I'm going to obey Him and do what He's called me to do. I'm going to trust in His promises. And we're not going to take our cues from out there. We're not going to Assyria. We're not going to Egypt. We're not going to build a culture that looks like the world. We're going to build something that's so much better. And I said it, I need to say it more, more accurately. God is going to build something through us that's so much better. Amen. And so today, how are you going to respond? There's been a lot said there's a lot that the prophet brings with that serrated edge. 
the edge with words that cut. And so now, here are you, individual, son or daughter of God. Pray and respond. And as a church, I think we have to also commit to doing things the way the Lord would have us, to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you came and Jesus, you worshiped perfectly the way we should always worship. And you came to live a perfect life. You came to shepherd your people perfectly. And as I stand here, I'm a man, Christian man, who does not live perfectly, who sins daily, who looks to you and by your grace continues to move forward, a pastor that does not pastor perfectly. In fact, pastors imperfectly, like I just need growth. And I still have indwelling sin. And there still can be a temptation to look cool to the world. And so God, for all of us here, for your church as a whole that's been redeemed and purchased, if we struggle with any of the things spoken about today, as the Holy Spirit brings conviction, not condemnation, Help us to turn to you and joyfully repent. Jesus, thank you for taking care of all of my sins. Thank you for removing them from me, nailing them to the cross, and I bear them no more. Thank you that I can come to you and confess, not in fear of punishment. Thank you that we can come to you as a son to the Father, as a son to a Father. And Holy Spirit, help us to do that. God, we want to worship you in spirit and truth. We don't want to be a cake not turned. We don't, we don't want to be a baker that doesn't know how to bake. We don't want to look to Assyria and Egypt. God, we want to see you continue to do amazing things in our midst. We look to you and trust you're going to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.